Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter number 16. Gave you a little break for a couple of weeks from the doomsday stuff. I know it was uh, uh, weighing kind of heavy on... <laughs> On some folks, uh, me it doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, they could, God could torch planet Earth tonight and it'd be perfectly all right with me. Uh, but uh, we're going to take another one of these doomsday messages tonight, and just got an awful lot to read to you. I hope it won't uh, bore you too terribly. I don't think it will. I think it'll be very interesting to you. But I want to talk to you tonight about the new world order. And I believe I agree with the president. I believe there is a new world order being set up. I believe there is a new uh, system of government and operations being established at this very minute on planet Earth. I just uh, don't think it's going to last. I've got a sneaking suspicion that one day uh, in the not-too-distant future, after this kingdom's all been set up and established, that God's going to take a stone uh, cut out from heaven without hands, and he's going to fly down through the solar system and smash their pretty little Tower of Babel that they're building. But we'll talk tonight about uh, this Tower of Babel that's being set up uh, even as we speak tonight. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Now, verse number 16, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 19. Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now, if you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, read it all the way through, there's something you need to watch for. And, and uh, starting all the way back there in, in the garden, Adam, who was set up on planet Earth and crowned by God as the ruler of the kingdom of heaven, that is the earthly, visible, physical kingdom that God established on this earth, we find Adam removing his crown there in the garden and placing that crown upon the head of the serpent. We run down through uh, history, and you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find out that God has a chosen people that he chooses out of the nations, and that all the nations and kingdoms of this world all throughout Old Testament history were continually gathering together and getting together to fight against God and his people and his purposes and his plans and designs on planet Earth. When Jesus Christ comes to earth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he goes out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted of the devil. And you know what Satan told him? Satan took him up on the uh, pinnacle of the temple one day, and in a moment of times he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, All these kingdoms will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And you don't read in your Bible Jesus turning to Satan and saying, What are you talking about? Those are my kingdoms. You know why? Because they're not his kingdoms. Those kingdoms are in the power and position possession of Satan. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me, but according to First and Second Corinthians, he will not uh, use that power to uh, come down here and conquer the kingdoms and governments of this world until the end of that seven-year tribulation period when he returns to rule and reign with a rod of iron. Right now, you and I are living in a day and age when 
we are seeing a repetition of what took place in Genesis 11, repetition of what took place in Genesis 14, repetition of what took place uh, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, repetition of what took place in Daniel chapter 3. We are seeing the nations of this world being gathered together and brought together in the name of government of the people by the people and for the people. And you know that communist president that said that up there at the battlefield of Gettysburg one day, he said that government, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, would not perish from the earth. Old Honest Abe should have checked Daniel chapter 7 before he opened his mouth. He made a terrible mistake. It is going to perish from the earth. Because one day it's going to be government of God, by God, and for God. And if you don't like it, he'll give you a quick ticket right out. Matter of fact, he will be removing from his kingdom all things that offend him. Now, how do you like that for a dictator? <laughs> how do you like that for an absolute ruler? Here's the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne at Jerusalem, and you can be clear on the other side of the globe, and if you say one thing he doesn't like, he'll pitch you right off the planet. How do you like that? Personally, I like it because I know he's the king of love and mercy and righteousness and all purity and decency and everything else. But anyway, that's getting way ahead of ourselves. What's being set up right now is man's kingdom, Satan's kingdom, and I want to talk to you tonight about this uh, new world order. President George Bush has called for a new world order under the authority of the United Nations. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, January 17, 1991, quote, This is an historic moment. We have, in this past year, made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. That was George Bush speaking in January of 1991. But that wasn't any new thing that Mr. Bush said then because the Associated Press release on July 26, 1968 said, quote, New York Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller says, as president, he would work toward international creation of a new world order. The Declaration of Interdependence was signed by 32 senators and 92 representatives on January 30, 1976. This uh, Declaration of Interdependence read in part, quote, two centuries ago our forefathers brought forth a new nation, now we must join with others to bring forth a new world order. That was signed by 32 U.S. Senators and 92 U.S. Representatives in 1976. According to the Seattle Post Intelligence of April 18, 1975, Henry Kissinger said, quote, Our nation is uniquely endowed to play a creative and decisive role in the new order which is taking form around us. George Bush gave the commencement address at Texas A&M University on May 12, 1989. The subject of his speech was Soviet-American relations. He said, ultimately, our objective is to welcome the Soviet Union back into the world order. Perhaps the world order of the future will truly be a family of nations. 
Colonel Edward Mandel House, the right-hand man to President Woodrow Wilson, had a hidden agenda for getting America into World War I. Walter Mills, the historian, wrote, quote, the colonel's sole justification for preparing such a batch of blood for his countrymen was his hope of establishing a new world order of peace and security. That took place back in, in the 19-teens in this country. The socialist Adolf Hitler during World War II said, quote, this is in the occult in the Third Reich, page 155, Adolf Hitler said in a speech, quote, National Socialism will use its revolution for the establishing of a new world order. Isn't it amazing to hear the President of the United States quoting Adolf Hitler in a speech to send our boys to the Middle East? In the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2 is discussed the need for wealthy nations to share their wealth with the poor nations. It is the moral obligation of the developed nations to provide through an international authority economic assistance to the developing portions of the globe. The April 1974 issue of Foreign Affairs magazine published by the Council of Foreign Relations contained an article by Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations in the Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy administration, Richard N. Gardner. Gardner said, quote, we are likely to do better by building our house of world order from bottom up rather th than from the top down. An end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, is likely to get us to world order faster than the old-fashioned assault. This man's the head of foreign relations under Johnson and Kennedy. He said, we don't want to just start from the top and declare that we're going to betray the sovereignty of the United States. We're going to start from the bottom and ship away at it piece by piece so the whole structure will come crashing down. That wasn't some, some crazy nut out in a, in a loony bin somewhere. That was the head of the Council of Foreign Relations, the Deputy Secretary of State under Johnson and Kennedy. Uh, Alexei... Kovilov, I can't pronounce these Russian names, K-O-V-Y-L-O-V, -O -O a communist, spoke to an evening audience in Windstar, Colorado in August 1985. He talked about the 12th World Festival of Youth and Students held in Moscow a few months before. He said, quote, There were three programs. The first was political and dealt with various issues of peace and disarmament. The second was dedicated to environmental and to the new international economic order. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels co-authored the Communist Manifesto in 1848. They claimed a change was needed. They wrote that the communists, quote, openly declare that their ends can be attained only by forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Nesta Webster wrote in her book, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, page 337, the revolution desired by the leaders is a moral and spiritual revolution an anarchy of ideas by which all standards, the Bible, God, the family, government, set up throughout 19 centuries shall be reversed, all honored traditions trampled underfoot, and above all, the Christian ideal finally obliterated. Dr. Jose or Kelly's of the Planet Art Network wrote, quote, also implicit in all these events is a call for another way of life, another way of doing things, a redistribution of global wealth, in short, a new world order. That's in a pamphlet published by International Sacred Rights Festival in Maui, Hawaii. 
Dr. James H. Billington of Harvard and Princeton Universities wrote in his book, The Fire in the Minds of Men, and gave us a glimpse of the type of government that the Ivy League professors are working toward. He said, this book seeks to trace the origins of a faith, perhaps the faith of our time. What is new is the belief that a perfect secular order will emerge from the forcible overthrow of traditional authority. You know what he's saying? He's saying we want a religious revival, but we want it to be a secular religion. We want to overthrow the pre-established Christian foundations of nations and governments, biblical foundations of societies and economic systems, but we want to do it in the form and guise of a social religion. The phrases liberty and fraternity of all peoples is nothing but a cloak that these men hide behind. Force and slavery as part of the New World Order is explained by B.F. Skinner, uh, chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University in his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Time magazine said the message of his book was, we can no longer afford freedom. It must be replaced with control over man. Complete control of his conduct and his culture is necessary. Alvin Toffler's book, The Third Wave, said, quote, a new civilization is emerging in our lifetime. This new civilization brings with it new family styles. We've been talking about that changed ways of worship, loving, and living, a new economy, new political conflicts, and beyond all this, an altered consciousness as well. The dawn of this new civilization is the single most explosive fact of our lifetimes. That's in New American Magazine, October 12, 1987. Manley Hall, 33rd degree Freemason, wrote in his book, Lectures on Ancient Philosophy, page 463, the time has not yet arrived when the average man is strong enough or wise enough to rule himself. Never will peace reign upon earth until we are ruled by the fit. One hundred years ago, 1884, it was predicted that within a few centuries men would revert to the gods of Plato and Aristotle. We may all look forward with eager anticipation to that nobler day when the gods of philosophy shall once more rule the world. You know what the Bible says in Genesis chapter number 6? There was a day when the gods came down to rule the world. You know what they're teaching the kids at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, at the Ivy League schools? You know what they're teaching them? You know what they're teaching them in the psychology textbooks in the colleges? Won't it be wonderful when you poor dumb men who aren't fit to rule yourselves can be ruled by the gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped back in the pagan times? just exactly as the Bible lays it out in Daniel 2 and Revelation chapter 9. Now, in uh, Huxley's book, The Brave New World, <laughs> uh, he says, in the end, the people will lay their freedom at the controller's feet and say to us, make us your slaves, just feed us. You ever read about the famine back there in Egypt? They came to Joseph, they said, we're hungry. He said, well, give me your crops gave him his crops. They came back, he said, uh, they said, we're still hungry. He said, well, give me your land. They gave him the land. They came back, they said, we're still hungry. He said, sell yourselves into slavery. They sold themselves into slavery, anything to get food in their mouth. You know where you are in the United States of America today? You're paying 35, 45% taxation to finance this kind of trash. And you know why the people aren't hollering about it? Because they keep stuffing food in your mouth. Amen.
You know what they said? They said, hey, as long as we feed these people, we can take complete control over every aspect of their lives as long as we put food in their mouth. Amen. Now, how about some background on this United Nations? To understand how the UN came into being, we've got to go back to the conclusion of the First World War. At that time, President Woodrow Wilson went to Paris with an entourage of insigners, Colonel Lawberg, the sinister Colonel Edward Mandel House, Thomas Lamont, the rest of the boys, and their hopes was to establish the League of Nations. And Woodrow Wilson, he, he literally destroyed his health. He literally drove himself to an early grave trying to force the United States into this League of Nations. And finally, there was such an uproar of the people at that time that it was voted down. The Senate, the House of Representatives says, no way we're joining up with this League of Nations. We're not going to do it. And Woodrow Wilson, we virtually had no president for the last year and a half of the Wilson presidency because he had a complete physical, mental, and emotional breakdown because his, his supreme goal in life was to get the United States hooked up into an international uh, compact and combine, and the people wouldn't go for it. Now, uh, in the United States, uh, then they started in the 1920s some front organizations for this one world government. One was called the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, which was brought into being by Colonel House with the aid of such well-known uh, international bankers as Baruch and Schriff and Wahlberg and Rockefeller. And since the days of FDR, these people have served in high government posts. Another powerful uh, tool was the education system, sponsored by Carnegie and led by John Dewey. Their specific job was to indoctrinate the public school teachers so that they would influence the social attitudes and behavior of coming generations. Dr. Harold Rugg, a disciple of uh, Dewey, uh, unveiled their motives when he wrote that, quote, a new public mind is to be created. Only by creating tens of millions of new individual minds and welding them into a new social mind can we accomplish our purpose. Old stereotypes must be broken up and new climates of opinion formed in the neighborhoods of America. Now what they did is they set out and they used the public school system of America to brainwash generation after generation after generation after generation of people, you could not have put through the Civil Rights Bill and the integration in the 1930s. By the 1950s and 60s, you were ready for it. You could not have put through this homosexual gay rights ERA trash in the 1950s and 60s, but after you, after you completely brainwashed two and three and four generations of young people, those people are now the adults of America who are saying, get God out, get the Bible out, get, break down all the barriers, let's all get together. The Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, the homos, the straights, the Christians, the pagans, we're all one big happy family. Now, how does that happen? It happens just the way they said it was going to happen by brainwashing the kids from the age of 6 through the age of 18 and feeding them this humanist garbage all the way up through the uh, educational ladder. Now, Council of Foreign Relations were losing no time in laying plans for the future. State Department Publication 2349 report to the President on the results of the San Francisco con Conference by the U.S. Secretary of State Edward Stettinius stated, quote, with the outbreak of war in Europe, it was clear that the United States would be confronted after the war with new and exceptional problems. Accordingly, a committee of post-war problems was set up before the end of 1939. Say, so Pearl Harbor forced us into the war. In 1939, your State Department was planning on what we would do after we got done fighting the war. That's official government publication, 2349. 
Um, the committee consisted of high officials within the Department of State, all but one were CFR members. Following Pearl Harbor, the One Worlders wasted no time capitalizing on our entry into the war. A conference was called of all the nations allied against the Axis powers. Meeting in Washington, D.C. early in 1942, representatives of 26 nations issued a declaration of the United Nations. There wasn't any United Nations in 1942 but they issued a declaration of the United Nations. The term allied powers was continued to be used in the media, but in government functions and negotiations, the term United Nations was used. Subsequent wartime propaganda, the term served two purposes. Helped develop support among the American people for our allies, including Russia, and also it served to condition the minds of the people to accept the United Nations when it showed up so as not to repeat the failure of the League of Nations. Even before the founding meeting of the United Nations organization could be held, the Council on Foreign Relations began to sell out America's interests in place of world government. At the Yalta Conference in early 1945, President Roosevelt and his advisors granted Russia three votes in the General Assembly of the United Nations and agreed that the United States would have only one vote. Now, as for the UN was ever set up, their meeting in 1945, planning the United Nations, and Roosevelt said, we'll give Russia three votes and we only want one. That was our president, supposedly. <laughs> now, um, let's see. On April 25, 1945, less than two weeks after Roosevelt's death, the San Francisco Conference opened with representatives of 46 nations in attendance. They adopted the charter the following day Reckon they had the thing all ready to go. I mean, 46 nations get together and one day later they've already agreed on the charter? That don't happen in a Baptist business meeting over what Sunday to have dinner on the grounds. They don't get that agreed on in one day. Now, uh, it says at the conclusion of the conference, the charter of the United Nations was bundled off to a waiting plane. It was placed in a 75-pound fireproof safe equipped with a parachute. Attached to the safe was a stern inscription, Finder, Do Not Open, Notify the Department of State, Washington, D.C. Chief Custodian was Conference Secretary Alger Hiss. This according to Life Magazine, July 16, 1945. The charter was on its way to Washington to be ratified by the Senate. The Eastern International Bankers and Communist Coalition spared no effort to get the UN past the American lawmakers. Their strategy was clear. Great popular support and enthusiasm for the United Nations policies should be built up, well organized, and fully articulate. But it is also necessary to do more than that. The opposition must be rendered so impotent that it will be unable to gather any significant support in the Senate against the UN Charter and the treaties which will follow. This is from Political Affairs, the official theoretical journal of the Communist Party in the United States, printed in April 1945. The Communist Party's official newspaper that came out in April 1945 said our job is to get the United States Senate to accept the United Nations Charter. That's their newspaper. This isn't some Baptist preacher uh, picking a fight with somebody. That's the Communist Party newspaper said it's our job to get the United States in the United Nations. This then was taken up by the liberal press. 
and the American public was deluged by a flood of misinformation, as usual, promoting the cause of world socialism. Ratification of the UN Charter was steamrolled through the Senate on a wave of speeches praising the organization, so the United States became committed to a new world order which subverts its own constitution. United States Secretary of State John Foster Dulles admitted in a speech on April 12, 1952, quote, the treaty signed with the United Nations has subverted our Constitution. The treaty-making power is an extraordinary power liable to abuse. Treaties make international law, and they also make domestic, internal law. Under our Constitution, treaties become the supreme law of the land. They are indeed more supreme than ordinary laws, for congressional laws are invalid if they do not conform to the Constitution, whereas treaty laws can override the Constitution treaties. For example, can the power, they can take powers away from the Congress and give them to the President. They can take powers from the states and give them to the federal government, or to some international body they can cut across the rights given to the people by their Constitutional Bill of Rights. That's John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State of the United States of America. He says, any agreement that's signed in the United Nations, a foreign government can enforce that on the people of the United States of America in spite of the Constitution and Bill of Rights of the United States. My home's in heaven. It's not here. I'm a citizen of heaven. A citizen of the United States, that's just, you know, kind of a temporary thing. My citizenship is in heaven, and I'm mighty glad of it. In 1950, the State Department uh, issued a very enlightening official report entitled Post-War Foreign Policy Preparation, 1939-45, to which named the men in the U.S. government who did the planning and shaped the policies that led to the creation of the United Nations. Alger Hish, Harry Dexter White, Virginius Coe, Noel Field, Lawrence Duggan, Henry Wadley, John Carter Vincent, uh, David Weintraub, Nathan Silvermaker, Harold Glasser, Victor Perlo, Irving Kaplan, Solomon Adler, Abraham Silvermaster, William Ullman, William Taylor, and John Foster Dulles. All of the above, with the exception of Dulles, were later identified in sworn testimony as communist agents. Every man but one who shaped our post-war foreign policy after World War II, it was testified under oath in sworn testimony that they were communist agents. John Foster Dulles, it's well known where his sentiments lay, he had been hired by Joseph Stalin to act as Russia's legal counsel in the United States. You didn't get that in school. <laughs> um, he was also closely associated with J.P. Morgan, there were, these were traitors who, in conjunction with the Communist Russia's official representatives, formulated the charter of the UN at the Dumberton Oaks and Yalta conferences. Seldom in all recorded history has a nation been so deliberately deceived by its alleged representatives. The few Americans who have read the constitutions of both the USSR and the United Nations have come to the spine-chilling realization that the United... Con United Nations Constitution is little more than a copy of the Constitution of the Soviet Union. Also, if you'll take a careful look, which who does these days, you will find an amazing similarity between the official seal of the United Nations and the official seal is the Soviet Union. Is it any wonder Carl Aldo Marzani, a well-known leftist, designed the UN seal? Now, turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 19. 
I'm sorry, Second Chronicles. There isn't Second Corinthians 19. Second Chronicles chapter 19. Now we're still back a generation ago. We haven't even got to uh, post World War II, and then we're going to come right on up into the present time. Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse number one. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. You know what he said? He said, wait a minute. You're the representative of a nation, and you've gone out and, and pledged an allegiance and an alliance and entered into an agreement with peoples that hate God and are the sworn enemy of God. You, you have just brought the wrath of God upon your nation. And you know something? At the end of World War II, our leaders swore and pledged a, a union with a nation of atheists that have made a career and a lifetime of murdering Christians, banning the Bible, outlawing exercise of Christianity, and have worked by every power possible to spread their atheistic, murderous communism throughout the world with the support financially, physically, emotionally, and politically of the United Nations and the United States of America, a professing Christian nation. If you want to know what happened in Vietnam, if you want to know what happened in the 1960s and destroyed a generation, you want to know where this drug business came from, you want to know where this homo business, this AIDS business came from, God said when a nation's leaders join into union with ungodly nations that hate God, they bring their own nation under the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. Amen. And you know something? Until we break all the ties, which we're not going to do, until we break all the ties with this ungodly Soviet communism, you are going to see the United States of America continue on a rapid downhill slide. Amen. People ask me all the time, I said, Brother James, what's the Bible say about the United States in prophecy? It doesn't say anything about it that I can see. I don't see the United States mentioned anywhere in Bible prophecy. People ask me all the time, say, why do you think that is? Because we're probably already down the tubes by the uh, time these things come along. Listen, God has entrusted us with his word like no other nation has ever been entrusted with the word of God. And the leaders of our nation are selling our nation and our sovereignty and our people and our independence out to sworn and avowed atheists. And God can't bless a nation like that. He said in the Second Chronicles 19, he couldn't and he wouldn't. Now, founders of the United Nations organization and their successors have proven to be masters of deceit. They have succeeded in covering up their real goals and objectives from the overwhelming majority of mankind behind an ever-increasing bombardment of propaganda in the name of peace, justice, freedom, and rights. Former United Nations Ambassador Adelaide Stevenson openly acknowledged this monstrous cover-up when he was so bold as to encourage newsmen to project a false image of the UN to the world. Speaking to the United Nations Correspondents Association, February 14, 1961, Stevenson asked newsmen to, quote, help us to create the sense of our overriding human concern. Interpret us to each other, not as plotters or as warmongers or as demons and demigods, but as puzzled yet aspiring men and women struggling on the possible brink of Armageddon to achieve a common purpose. We are not like that, I have no doubt, 
but I believe the majority of our delegates would accept such a description of their own attitudes. The whole press corps working at the United Nations has a unique part to play in projecting this picture. Now, you know what he said? He said, uh, he said we want you to, to project to the people an image. We want you to convince the people that we are not demons and demigods bringing the world to the brink of Armageddon. We are. But tell them we're not. That's what our ambassador to the United Nations said. He said, we're bringing the world to the brink of Armageddon. But tell the people we're trying to help them out. And that organization, in the first 40 years of its, of its existence, the United Nations, was responsible for establishing, organizing, funding, and promoting 47 wars in 40 years. That's, that's a pretty good job of bringing peace on earth by goodwill to man, you know that? <laughs> they're, they're doing a fine job. You go up there in New York City, you know what it's got plastered on the wall outside the United Nations building? From a King James Bible, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You know what? On the inside of that building, with a form of godliness on the outside, on the inside of that building, they were hatching up 47 wars in 40 years, and our ambassador to the UN saying, we're, de we're demons and demigods bringing the world to the brink of Armageddon, but you news people, uh, newspaper folks, you be sure and convince the people we're good guys helping them out. And the dumb, stupid Americans that read a Bible, uh, newspaper every morning won't read a Bible, believe them. Amen. I'm sorry, dumb, stupid Americans. I, you know, uh, ignorant, deceived Americans. How's that? <laughs> they, they might not all be dumb and stupid, but uh, I'll tell you, it's just amazing. One of the false pictures being projected by the UN is that it is a peacekeeping organization determined to, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women to nations large and small. That's in the preamble of their constitution. You hear that morning, noon, and night. Mandela gets up and he says, we put the tire around the neck and filled it with gasoline and torched those black boys over there in South Africa because we believe in the dignity of humanity and human rights. And then the leader of the Soviet Union gets up and says, we just sent 18,000 boys and girls to a concentration camp in Siberia because we believe in the common good of the common man. And the people say, oh, well, yeah, I guess as long as they're, as long as they're doing it for peace and, and for, for man, as long as it's, it's for a good purpose. Bah, bah, bah. The dumb sheep just head right to the slaughter one after the other. Amen. Now, even a quick glance at the record of the last 45 and a half years will clearly show that such high-sounding phraseology is just that, it's just talk. Since 1945, there have been more than 45 major outbreaks of violence. Korea, United Nations action. Vietnam, UN action. Hungary, Tibet, Biafra, Katanga, Angola, uh, Ethiopia, and uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. You just go right on down the list, every one of them. Those weren't wars. I mean, those tanks and bombs and guns and graveyards and body bags, those weren't wars. Those were United Nations peacekeeping actions. 
I hope they never come keep the peace at my house. <laughs> I don't like that kind of peace. People get hurt in that kind of peace. Amen. During the same period of time, well over one billion people have been enslaved by communism. The United Nations has not prevented the enslavement of a single person, hasn't liberated a single individual from communist tyranny, hasn't tried to, for liberty is not the goal of the United Nations. President George Bush's United Nations war was not fought to liberate Kuwait, but to establish authority of a world body in the Middle East. You know how many independent Bible-believing churches there are in Kuwait? None. It's against the law. You know how many people have freedom in Kuwait, own land and property? 8.6% of the population. You know what kind of government they got over there? They got a dictatorship. You know why we went over there? To establish the authority of the United Nations over Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, also got our minds off what was going on in the Soviet Union as UN member Russia was keeping Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania under the grip. Amen. The UN Charter makes various references to equal rights and self-determination of peoples. Most Americans, accustomed to examining words for their exact meaning, have accepted these terms as synonymous with protection of rights and liberty. Merely to guarantee equal rights to everyone is no guarantee of rights for all. If the rights of all the people were reduced to zero, all the people would have equal rights. Ever think about that? If you don't have any rights, and I don't have any rights, and he doesn't have any rights, and she doesn't have any rights, we've all got equal rights. You know what they got behind the Iron Curtain? It's in the Soviet Constitution. Equal rights. You know what they have behind the Great Wall of China? Equal rights. Nobody has any. They're all equal. When the UN Charter speaks about the self-determination of peoples, the word people means the people of a nation as a collective body. There is no place for individualism and real personal freedom in the New World Order. And who pays the bill for the New World Order through the United Nations? Uh, you might have guessed it's the American taxpayers. When the American people began bankrolling the UN in 1946, the Congress opened a bank account in the name of United Nations New York, New York. Although few realize it, the check Congress signed authorized to be appropriated annually to the Department of the State out of the Treasury such sums as may be necessary for the payment by the United Nations as apportioned by the General Assembly. That's United States Code, Title 22, Foreign Relations Intercourse, Chapter 7, Section 287E, page 5639, 1970. This U.S. law clearly states the United Nations tells the United States how much money we have to pay them to run their operations. Our Senate signed that into law. It's law. Every year the UN says, this is how much money we want and you're going to pay it. And we sign the check and send it up there. Russia's got three votes. We've got one. They tell us how much we pay to sponsor their wars to spread atheism and communism around the world. The UN budget is assessed against all members at scales broadly based upon their ability to pay, <laughs> which is simply an international application of the basic Marxist principle, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Our share of the financial burden has always headed the list. It was originally suggested the U.S. kick in 50% of the budget. That amount was negotiated down to 39.89%. 
Since that time, the U.S. assessment of the regular U.N. budget has been gradually lowered. It now stands at 25%. That figure is misleading because it does not include our voluntary contributions to various special programs, and the U.N. dictates to us which voluntary contributions we want to make. <laughs> How'd you like your boss to come around and say tomorrow you are going to voluntary, con voluntarily contribute 50% of your paycheck to my drinking party this weekend? You wouldn't like that, would you? But that's what the UN says to your State Department every single year. In 1952, the Senate Security Subcommittee began an investigation of U.S. citizens employed by the United Nations. Of the 33 U.S. citizens employed by the U.N., called as witnesses, 26 refused to answer questions concerning Communist Party affiliations by pleading the Fifth Amendment. Twelve employees refused to say whether or not they would be loyal to the United States in the event of war with Russia. Senator James O. Eastland of Mississippi, subcommittee chairman, stated during the course of the hearing, quote, I am appalled at the extensive evidence indicating that there is today in the U.N. among the American employees there the greatest concentration of communists that this committee has ever encountered. I believe that the evidence shows that the security officers of our government knew, or at least had reason to know, that these people had been communists for many years. This is in activities U.S. citizens employed by the U.N. hearings before Senate Committee on Judiciary 1952, pages 181-182. Even while the federal government was holding its hearings, federal grand jury in New York was also investigating U.S. employees working in the U.N. In the grand jury report stated, page 407 and 408, startling evidence is disclosed infiltration into the UN of an overwhelmingly large group of disloyal US citizens, many of whom are closely associated with the international communist movement. If you want it here, I've got a list of all the names and all the places where they were identified as being uh, communist agents. These were all our people at the UN. Now, President George Bush followed his father, Prescott Bush, in the secret Yale University fraternity, Skull and Bones, pick up any book on Satanism, and the skull and crossbones is a symbol of satanic worship, anywhere you find it. Uh, your president is a member of the Skull and Bones secret fraternity. Only 15 members a year are selected. Out of these, uh, some eventually are allowed to know the secret of the coming world government. President Bush resigned a two-year stint on the board of directors of the Council of Foreign Relations in 78-79. The inner core of both the Council of Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission are working for world government. CFR was founded by Marxist Colonel Edward Mandel House. David Rockefeller of the International Banking was chairman of the board of the CFR and also founded the Trilateral Commission, became its chairman of the board. President George Bush wants to establish a new world order by the year 2000. He believes that he is destined to usher in this new era of peace and prosperity for the world. In his speech to the nation on January 16, 1991, he said, quote, Our objective is clear. Saddam, <laughs> he never says Saddam. You know why that is? Anybody know why that is? Saddam, uh, the way he pronounced Saddam or Saddam, you know, he pronounced it different than everybody else does. That means in Arabic, a houseboy who cleans the stables. And that's why he pronounces it that way. Every time he was saying that, he was calling Hussein a houseboy that cleans the stables. <laughs> Amen. Well, I, just a little information there. That's free. I won't charge you for that. Uh, Saddam Hussein's forces will leave Kuwait. 
Iraq will eventually comply with all United Nations resolutions, and then when peace is restored, it is our hope that Iraq will live as a peaceful and cooperative member of the family of nations, thus enhancing the security and stability of the Gulf. I had hoped that when the United States Congress in historic debate took its resolute action, Saddam would realize that he would not prevail and would move out of Kuwait in accordance with the United Nations resolutions. He did not do that. Saddam was warned over and over again to comply with the will of the United Nations. Leave Kuwait or be driven out. Tonight, 28 nations, countries from five continents, Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Arab League, have forces in the Gulf area standing shoulder to shoulder against Saddam Hussein. This is an historic moment. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. An order in which the credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. Now, United Nations. Now, what's your Bible teach in the book of Revelation? Your Bible teaches all nations, one global family, all one race, all one religion, all one sex, all one belief system, all one objective, all one big happy family. Your president said, you know something? The way it looks right now, we might be able to pull that off. You know what that tells me as a saved, born-again Christian? Jesus might be able to pull off the rapture any day now. Any day now. Does President Bush know the plans to have world government by the year 2000? In his speech to the United Nations, October 1, 1990, he said, quote, We must join together in a new compact to bring the United Nations into the 21st century. The calendar offers up a convenient milestone, a signpost by which to measure our progress as a community of nations. The year 2000 marks a turning point, the beginning of the millennium. The United Nations can help bring about a new day and press forward to cap an historic movement towards a new world order. Your president told the United Nations, this was printed in the New York Times, October 2nd, 1990, page A6, he said, you know something? We are right on the verge of bringing in a new world order, and I believe we are about to witness the dawn of the millennium. And you know what he called it? A new day. You know something? They get all done with all their backroom secret meetings and plotching this and hatching that and swearing by the skull and the crossbones they're going to sell out the Christians in America, and they end up quoting a King James Bible and agreeing with the words of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry tonight about Russia, China, the governments of the world, the armies of these nations. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have got it made. Amen. They're going to they're do what God said they're going to do. They can't help but fulfill the Word of God. Now, uh, I don't know. You got a dollar? Anybody got a dollar bill? We're not going to take up an offering. You can take it home with you. Get a, get a dollar bill if you got one. I want to show you. Got one? I got one. Now, get this dollar bill here. Go ahead and take a look at it. It won't, it won't bite you. 
There's a little uh, slogan printed on that dollar bill. See the pyramid there? With the capstone, the headstone of the corner coming down out of heaven with one eye. You ever read about a false Christ, a false capstone? He's only got one eye. Zechariah chapter 11, you know what that is right there? That's a picture of the Antichrist as the head of the nations. Now underneath that, you've got some words printed, Novus Ordo Slicorum. You see that there? Don't hold me to the pronunciation. You see that there, written under there? There's three words under the pyramid. You know what that means? New Order of the Ages. That's Latin for New Order of the Ages. In God we trust, which God? Flip it over. A one-eyed God that's setting up a new world order. You better not trust this piece of paper, this green and white one. You better trust this black and white one, this Word of God. You better trust that one. On March 16, 1989, in a radio speech, George Bush said, What are we doing to prepare ourselves for a new world that's coming just 11 short years from now? <laughs> they know. The times and the seasons. Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. I'm glad I'm saved tonight. <laughs> Jesus said, and you see wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled or soon shaken in mind. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'd hate to think my faith tonight was in the federal government. I'd sell you out in a minute. See, there's a God-ordained plan. Of the, you know what God said in that book of Revelation? He said, when the last days got here, I was going to send out unclean spirits to control the actions of the leaders of the world governments to get them all together. Revelation 13, verse uh, 16. He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now, you know something just a few generations ago, before all this modern technology and everything else got going, you wouldn't have thought it possible to have absolute control over every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of this earth to control what they bought, what they sold, where they went, how they did. You, you wouldn't have thought that possible. It's possible in our day and age. You know good and well it is. Now, I want to read you some things here about uh, the condition that your nation is in today with regards to their ability to set up this Revelation chapter 13 Antichrist business. Efforts to form a global government are certainly nothing new. American political leaders were concerned with America first, were able to overcome internationalist one-world government uh, attempts by Woodrow Wilson following World War I with the League of Nations. But a few decades later, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, near the end of World War II, got his one-world plans underway and set up the foundations of the United Nations, which were completed by his successor, Harry Truman. A few years later, uh, 35,000 young Americans were dead on the battlefields of Korea, fighting for the United Nations, not for America. Problem was that uh, one-worlders had always encountered was the U.S. Constitution. This always stood as a bulwark against uh, any globalist schemes. Nevertheless, American presidents since Roosevelt have chipped away at the great powers of the people uh, that were written into the Constitution by the Founding Fathers. 
Now, something that everybody needs to be aware of is a thing called executive orders. Executive orders. Uh, these are under the guise of a national emergency uh, give the president serving at the time the power to suspend the Constitution and rule the nation as a virtual dictatorship. Dissent, peaceful or otherwise, is thereby eliminated. Those behind these efforts to circumvent the con Constitution got the idea from President Abraham Lincoln, who you were taught in school was a great guy. That's part of the brainwashing we told you about that Huxley set up. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was about to lose his shirt because the people in the North were sick and tired of going, having to leave their homes and go down and kill Southerners fighting a war that was unconstitutional. And Abraham Lincoln suspended the Constitution. He put in a mandatory federal tax. He put in a mandatory draft registration. He put in a mandatory conscription for all males in the northern states. All of those were in direct violation of the Constitution of the United States. And he sent the federal armies down to force independent sovereign states to maintain a union with states they didn't want to be united to in direct and total violation of the U.S. Constitution. It started way back then. So to this day, the one-worlders that are trying to push this United Nations thing over on you hold up Abraham Lincoln as the greatest president we ever had. You've got to pray about those things. Now, um, in 1862, Congress enacted the Enrollment Act to allow the drafting of young men for the Union Army. The act was rife with inequities, such as the provision which allowed a man to pay $300 to, hire, to get out or to hire a substitute to take his place. This hated rich man's exemption, as it was called, angered the average American of military age, and a riot erupted in 1863 in New York and resulted in Lincoln using extraordinary powers of his office to keep the Union from falling apart from within. And over the years, the presidents have used these powers uh, for purposes never intended by the Founding Fathers. President John Tyler used such powers in 1842 to round up... Now listen, this is, not, this is not something so far removed. We're laying a foundation. It's important. John Tyler in 1842 used the powers of the executive office to round up Seminole Indians in Georgia and Florida and force march them, men, women, and children, to Arkansas. This was the first use of internment in America to deal with unpopular minorities. In 1886, uh, Geronimo and the Apache Indians surrendered to U.S. troops in the West. They were rounded up by order of President Grover Cleveland and shipped to internment in Florida and Alabama. Earlier, during the war between the states, Sioux Indians in Minnesota, uh, when there was a delay in paying them their yearly allowance, began attacking nearby white settlements. Lincoln sent in a hastily raised force of volunteers under Colonel H.H. H. Sibley, a Little Crow uh, leader of the Kaposia Band, and was decisively defeated by Union troops on September 23, 1862, and more than 2,000 Sioux were taken captive, although Little Crow himself and a few followers escaped. Through the process of a military tribunal sanctioned by Lincoln, 36 Sioux leaders were publicly hanged. Whether the Sioux executed were innocent or guilty was apparently immaterial. The revolt was quelled, and the Minnesota Sioux were all moved to reservations in Dakota. These instances of the nation's executive branch taking extraordinary measures to confine or intern American Indians are just a few of many examples. More recent examples of interring minorities by executive order occurred during World War I and World War II. 
During the First World War, an unknown number of German Americans were rounded up by federal authorities and interned uh, until after the war. In addition, regardless of the First Amendment guarantees of the Constitution for freedom of speech and press, German-language newspapers published within German-American communities in the U.S. were banned. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, within days, the FBI had rounded up tens of thousands of Japanese Americans guilty only of being Japanese and of Japanese ancestry under the authority of an executive order issued by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The lists of those to be apprehended had been drawn up months earlier before the war. Held in concentration camps, the perimeters guarded by U.S. soldiers armed with machine guns, mostly innocent and patriotic Japanese Americans, were not released until after the war. Congress has recently passed legislation extending the nation's apologies to the Japanese Americans and uh, extending compensation, but no apology was ever given to the 8,000 German Americans that were confined to uh, jails and camps across the United States. Many were not released until 1947, a full two years after the end of the war, in total violation of the Geneva Conventions. Eberhard Furr of Cincinnati said, quote, What happened to me and thousands of others is old history, but the next time it could be any other group, which is then not politically correct or out of favor for any other reason. Now, you know something? Let's suppose, let's just suppose that uh, they decided that we're going to go ahead and kick this one world thing off, and whether you're a Muslim or an atheist or a communist or a Christian, we're all one big happy family, and you better keep your mouth shut and not protest against and preach against this one world order because we're all one big happy family. You know something? Within a matter of months, by executive orders that are on the books, every Bible-believing Christian in America could be rounded up and sent to a concentration camp as a threat to the peace and stability of the United States. You say, it could never happen. They rounded up all the Japanese and Germans. They rounded up all the Indians. You know what they were? They were threatening minority groups. You know what you Bible believers are that yell and holler down there on that street corner and got that Bible plastered on the back end of your automobiles? You're a threat to the peaceful harmony of the community. You don't believe it, take a look in the rearview mirror at the next traffic light. If you don't want to be tailgated, just put the gospel on the back bumper. They stay way back. Now, under the Constitution, the president is vested with the executive power of the government. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, the power to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 7, and the power to see that the laws are faithfully executed. Article 2, Section 3. From these powers is implied the authority to issue executive orders. Actually, the term executive order has never been defined by Congress. The validity of executive orders has been questioned many times over the years, at least dating back to Lincoln's executive measures bypassing Congress, taken during the Civil War, but a ruling as to the extent or limit to which they may be used has never been determined by the courts. The Federal Register contains the text of directives issued by the presidents. There is no congressional authorization required, nor is there any review by the judiciary or the courts. All executive orders are binding laws made by a single man, the President of the United States. The frightful power of the executive orders was driven home by the introduction last year in both houses of Congress of legislation which would declare a national drug and crime emergency. Introduced in the House by supposed conservative uh, Newt Gingrich of Georgia and in the Senate by another supposed conservative Phil Graham of Texas, 
The legislation, if enacted, would have made the United States a federal emergency situation and would have allowed the executive orders which are on the books to go into effect. The measures both died in committee, but uh, they came awfully close. They've got an agency right now called uh, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and, and the federal, I'll g give you all this, but you can have it up here if you want to have, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has every citizen, every resident, whether citizen or not, every resident of the United States of America is in a computer bank in Virginia if the president declared a state of emergency tonight and you were considered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency to be a threat or a danger to society in the case of that emergency, within 24 hours an FBI agent would be at your door, they know who you are and where you are, and they have you classified by what you do and where you go. Amen. You ever get these little things in the mail? It says, we want to send you some free uh, samples of groceries and some coupons to save on your groceries. What are your interests? Uh, where do you like to go? How do you like to spend your free time? All that stuff goes in the computer banks. When you fill out that itemized tax return, oh, he gave to a church. Gave to an independent church. Gave to a Bible-believing church. You're, you're right there on a list. If they decided, now I don't know that they would, if they decided that the threat in this case of emergency was Bible-believing Christians, they know who you are and where you are, and they wouldn't have any trouble rounding you up and taking you to a concentration camp legally in the United States of America. You don't believe it? I'll read you the logs. Here are some of the executive orders which are standing on the books right now that have gone into effect under presidents from Roosevelt through uh, Carter. EO 10-995 provides for the takeover of the communications media. President declared a state of emergency. He could take over all news media tomorrow morning, legally, in the United States of America. Executive Order 10997 provides for the takeover of all electric power, petroleum, gas, other fuels, and minerals. They can seize every gas station in America tomorrow morning, legally. Uh, Executive Order 10998 provides for the takeover of all food resources and the nation's farms. Executive Order 11000 provides for mobilization of all civilians into work brigades under government supervision. You know something? Those four orders right there, they went into effect tomorrow morning. You couldn't buy, sell, trade, get groceries, go out of your house without permission from someone that controlled that mark in your forehead or in your hand. That's laws, existing laws in the United States of America waiting for a declaration of an emergency. You know something? Do you think, now just suppose, just suppose at tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 5 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Pacific and Mountain Time, suppose at that hour tomorrow afternoon the Lord himself should descend from heaven with a shout,
trump of God and the voice of the archangel and every Christian that was driving a car, flying a plane, walking down the sidewalk, operating a machine was suddenly caught out. Do you realize that within 24 hours the United States of America would be in a state of emergency such as has never been known before on the face of the earth and the, pr the plan and program is already set up for the Antichrist within 24 hours to set up Revelation chapter 13. I believe Jesus is coming very, very soon. I believe, as I said when we started these uh, messages on the doomsday, I don't think there's anything that has to happen for every page of God's Word to be fulfilled just like He wrote it. All the pieces of the puzzle are in place. Executive Order 11001 provides for government takeover of all health, education, and welfare functions. 11002 designates Postmaster General to operate national registration of all persons. 1103 uh, provides for government to take over airports and aircraft. 11,004 provides for the housing and finance authority to relocate communities, designate areas to be abandoned, and establish new locations for populations. You know what all this is? This is all the, 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 the program that the Third Reich carried out in Germany in the 30s and 40s. This is Adolf Hitler on the books in Washington, D.C., 11,005 provides for the government to take over railroads, inland waterways, and public storage facilities. All of the above orders were combined by President Richard Nixon and the notorious Executive Order 11490, pronounced 11, uh, EO 11490, which allows all these uh, things to take place if a national emergency is declared. Direct quotes from the 40-page Nixon uh, Executive Order. Quote, Develop plans and procedures for the Department of Defense utilization of non-industrial facilities in the event of an emergency in order to reduce requirements for new construction and provide facili for facilities in a minimum period of time. In other words, confiscation of private property. Revelation chapter 13. Develop plans and procedures for the provision of logistical support to members of foreign forces, their employees and dependents, as may be present in the United States under terms of bilateral or multilateral agreements which authorize such support in the event of a national emergency. Do you see all those fellows getting together over there in Saudi Arabia? If they declare an emergency in America tomorrow, any member of the United Nations peacekeeping force can send their troops to the United States and operate freely within our borders. Legally. In other words, prepare for <laughs> a takeover. Develop emergency plans for the control of alien enemies and other aliens within the United States. <laughs> You know what President Nixon said? He said, if the other governments send their armies, we want provision to take care of them. And if there's any other aliens that show up, we want them taken care of as well. Don't your Bible says in Daniel chapter 2, Genesis chapter 6, and Revelation chapter 9, there's going to be some alien armies on planet Earth during the time of the Great Tribulation, and they won't be Russian and they won't be Chinese. And your government's already made preparations to work with them and cooperate with them. Goodbye, world. I'm leaving. I'm going straight up, and I'm not stopping till I get home to heaven. I'm not even going to open my eyes. I'm going to be. I just want to make sure that I don't lose my way. I'm just going to trust the Lord to get me home to glory. Getting out of this mess. 
Secretary of Labor shall have primary responsibility for preparing national emergency plans, developing preparedness programs, covering civilian manpower resources, that is, forced labor. Provision for regulation of money and credit in accordance with the needs of the national economy, including acquisition, decentralization, and distribution of supplies of currency, collection of cash items and non-cash items, and the conduct of fiscal agency and foreign operations. You know what the law says, Executive Order uh, 11490 says? that if they declare a state of emergency tomorrow, they can come and take every dime you got and every piece of property you got. Revelation chapter 13. Uh, provision for resumed operation of banking, saving and loan, farm credit institution, including measures for the uh, recreation evidence, uh, so on and so forth. Anyway, I could read you all this stuff, but what I'm saying to you is when the Antichrist shows up after the world is in a state of emergency because of the rapture, the United Nations has already set up laws in every civilization of the world, every civilized nation in the world, so that he can legally, by treaties, come to the place of the world dictator. You know what that Bible says in the book of Daniel? That Bible says when the Antichrist comes, he's going to come to power through treaties. The treaties are already signed and on the books. I think we're getting raptured real soon. Turn your Bible to Daniel. We'll finish up with this. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter number 7. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, time shall be no more. <laughs> I tell you, I just, I just see Jesus up there on the edge of his seat, just waiting for his father to say, all right, go ahead. I tell you, we are close. Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. The fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four or four kings, which shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. 
and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. Listen. When the United Nations and the presidents and the kings and the princes and the popes get all done, Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth. And you and I are going to be given the keys to the kingdoms of this world. Have no fear. It's all going to turn out all right. It's all going to turn out just fine. Father in heaven, thank you tonight, Lord, for the privilege of being saved the privilege of watching the world race to destruction with peace in our hearts and joy in our hearts. Father, because we know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and he shall reign forever and forever. Father, the time is short. We pray that you'd stir up the remnant of your people to serve you and live for you till the day that you call us home. We believe it's just a little while we have left to labor. Help us to be true and faithful till the day that you come again. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.